Welcome to the RV Navigator Podcast, your RV lifestyle digital home. Visit the RV Navigator homepage at rvnavigator.com. And now, here are your hosts, Ken and Martha, podcasting from their mobile RV studio that might be parked in a campground near you. Hello, this is Ken, your RV Navigator. And Martha, the co-pilot. And we're talking to you yet again ah. from on the road in beautiful Pa Rump, Nevada. And since our last podcast, I don't think we've had even a drop of rain. It's a beautiful thing. We complained very dramatically during our trip out here. And for the few, first few weeks, we were in the cold and we had snow and other assorted weather events. But... Oh, as we look back now, with, it was worth it. With, with uh, El Nino causing all the problems on the east, and it has caused the west to be warm and sunny. And by warm, we mean much warmer than usual. We've actually had to use the air conditioner, <laughs> hard to believe. And we're wearing our shorts. And we are broadcasting right now from Parump. I wish That's I knew the, the meaning behind that name must be Indian, I would guess. Pahrump is a place I never really heard of before. Nope. Conveniently located between Las Vegas and Death Valley. Both wonderful destinations. And the reason why we're really staying here is because we got a deal. It's cheap. <laughs> And it's a beautiful campground. Beautiful campground. And, and hard to believe that it's actually on a lake in Parump, Nevada, which is about just over the mountains from Las, from Vegas. Las Vegas. They talk about Parump as being kind of a bedroom community for Las Vegas. And we have are enjoying our time here at a lake with a nice cement pad and 50-amp service. And the total cost for the week was... $90? 90 Yeah. Something like that, yeah. yes. So we are always interested in bargains, and we have certainly paid our price for some sites, but uh, this one we're really we're, getting for we're a bargain. We're improving on our average campground fee for the trip. Exactly. <laughs> we always like to do that when we're spending long times on the road. It's always good to save money. So you might want to come and... Well, I don't know if you want to come and visit. <laughs> there's nothing to do in We Pahrump. just got here. We don't know if there's anything to do. <laughs> we are going to the Balloon Festival this afternoon, where they will be launching and you found a few. An, ec an economical golf course. Economical golf course. So there are maybe a few things in Pahrump. Uh We've enjoyed the cheap gas, which is good news. That's uh, saved us uh, quite a few bucks as we travel around. Uh, diesel, even in California. California has been under two dollars under two dollars a gallon for diesel whereas regular gas is about 225 california never has cheap gas never and they said that it's going to go up 30 cents a gallon as a result of them starting to to cook up the summer blend <laughs> summer blend we get that at home we too, get but that not in yeah, February. <laughs> but for california to have gas that's under three bucks a gallon is really a, a shocker so come on out enjoy the trip and enjoy your rv the beautiful you southwestern u.s the beautiful southwestern u.s at the present time of course we don't want to be here in the summer but everybody says it's extremely hot and we definitely believe them well, da, enough, da, da, enough da, da, of all this oh, yes. trivia. Let's get we down have, to the real business. We have important things to talk about. We do indeed. As you all know, we invited you to participate in a couple of raffles that we had to celebrate our big decade of RV podcasting. And many of you decided that you wanted to participate, and we're very happy that you sent an email to the correct address, and we have now chosen our winners randomly. Two people we don't know. And unexpectedly, these emails Oops. came with a lot of wonderful compliments, which did not influence yes. the decision No, in not way. at all. It was completely random, but we <laughs> I wasn't really planning on reading all the emails, uh, reading them. I, was, I expected just to find your name and an email address and maybe an address, but uh, you wrote so many nice comments that I actually compiled them into a... A memorable document which we can look at when the days are dark. Enough to motivate us <laughs> for another 10 years. Yes. And that is really true. I'll tell you, it's the listeners like you that motivate us to create this podcast. And you've had so many good comments uh, about how much you enjoy it. And, you know, one of the things I'm really surprised at is the binge listening. 
Well, that's the latest trend with TV watching as well. Several of you said to us, well, I have uh, just found your podcast and I'm going back and listening to all 10 years and I wish there were more. Wow. Wow. So we want to definitely thank all of you for listening, and we definitely want to hear from you and tell us your stories, share your emails, uh, and it's very heartening for us to know that you are listening. Suggest topics (laughs) that we should be talking about. Exactly. And share with us your RVing experiences, too. But enough of that. Enough of that. Right. And it's time to get down. Who won? Okay. So we had two raffles, as most of you know, and the official documents are right here in my hand. Opening the Academy Awards envelope. Yes, I used the random number generator, and you're just going to have to trust me on this. I did use the random number generator, and entry number 114 was chosen for the GPS. And the winner of the GPS is Anne Armstrong. Yay, Anne! Who I know. May you never get lost again. <laughs> Like us. Uh, yeah, the GPS has led us astray just a few times, but most of the time it does a very good job. So Anne will be the winner of the GPS. I don't know her location or address. I know nothing more about her than her email address, but I have sent her an email with uh, the congratulatory information and requesting that she give us her shipping address. So congratulations, Anne, and thank you all for entering that raffle. And now something that is near and dear to us, the second raffle, the, the week's stay at TGO, the Great Outdoors in Titusville, Florida. That was won by the 38th entry. Another woman. That tells you that these were random. He would never have picked two women. Oh, come on. I'm fair. Yes, and you and you picked? And I picked Vicki Conley. C-O-N-L-E-Y. So, Vicki. You are the proud owner of One Week at TGO, Lot 375, Oak Cove. So let us know when you want to come, as long as it's not in deepest, coldest winter next well, year. Well, we because, would make arrangements for whatever she wants. Because maybe that's when we want to be there. Yeah, we'll, we'll work it out. Yes, we will work it out, and we very much appreciate all of you entering. And the raffle is now closed, but we had a good time with it, and... If we can find some more prizes in the next 10 years, we will do it again. Maybe on our 200th podcast. We're at 131, and this is March of 2016. It's possible. It's possible, but for now, it's gone to bed. And if I'm remembering correctly, you also have some uh, bumper stickers left, if people are still interested in those. (laughs) Yes. Yes, uh, we still have some bumper stickers. If you'd like an RV Navigator bumper sticker, you will be sent one with a thank you note. For listening. It's the least we can do. As long as we still have them. And there may be some uh, atlases coming along, but we haven't exactly heard how many of those we have. But uh, we will be sending to the GPS group uh, some atlases of unknown quantity to other random entrants. Thank you. Thanks to the generosity of Rand McNally. We want to thank Rand McNally very much for supplying us with the raffle uh, prize, the GPS. So thank you very much, Rand McNally. So the next experience... uh, how were we in Las Vegas? Las Vegas is not your typical RV destination. Well, we've stayed in Las Vegas with our RVs numerous times and found it very comfortable yes. and convenient. Uh, the campgrounds are just out of town, mm-hmm. I would say five, six miles from the Strip, so it's an easy drive. And Las Vegas, like many of the towns out here in the wide west, has wonderful roads, nice wide ones, six, seven lanes. So even though there may be a lot of traffic, we can zoom into the Strip whenever we want, park for free, and save a lot of money. Vegas is very car friendly, isn't it? Being at a campground. Yes. And there are many campgrounds, and many of them are very expensive. But we were shopping around, and we found the King's Row Campground. And the King's Row Campground is, on a weekly basis, $12 a night. Plus electricity. Plus electricity. This is one of the first campgrounds we found that actually charges you for electricity on a nightly basis. Usually when you stay a month, they will charge you for electricity, but not for a week. And it was interesting to find that after one week of staying there that our all-electric Dutch Star used about $5 worth of electricity, uh, Las Vegas electricity, I don't know what the rate is, Las Vegas electricity per night. Did we run some air? No, we didn't run air, but we, we were heat, heat at, right? At night. Yeah. <laughs> We've gone from heat to air conditioning. Yeah. 
if you're planning on that sort of stuff, you can see, you can see five bucks a night uh, is what the campgrounds have to pay for electricity. So five of your fee goes directly to the electric to company. To the power bill. Yeah, depending on how much power you use. But why use propane when you could use the, their electricity is the way we feel. And, of course, we don't have any choice about that because we only use electricity. A few words about Las Vegas as non-gamblers, not because we have any moral objection <laughs> no. to it. We just don't find it to be entertaining, amusing. We love coming to Las Vegas every few years to see what's new. And I would say that since 2008, when a lot of things went into the dumper, there has been less new in Las Vegas than we noticed in our previous visits. Some of the empty lots that we had seen last time were still empty lots. Surprisingly Some of the buildings that were in progress were still in progress. Hard to believe. If you haven't been to Las Vegas for a while, maybe it will be more new to you than it was to us. But we were surprised surprised to see very tangible evidence of the lack of growth there right. recently. However, uh, we were there about two years ago, three years ago, and that's what she's talking about. The construction that was started at that time has stopped, but there are new things. They finished the Ferris wheel, which we took. The largest Ferris wheel in the country with rotating gondolas. Although we're building one in Chicago. (laughs) So the competition continues, but this one is a huge one. Cost twenty-two bucks to go in for a forty-minute loop around the Ferris wheel. It's called the High Roller. We went to a show after we went, after on, the we went on the high roller, and I had the tickets confused in my pocket, and we went up to the maitre d' to go into the show, and I gave him, by accident, the tickets to the Ferris wheel, which is called the high roller, and he said, these are high roller tickets. And I said, oh, am I a, not, not making the connection? I didn't know what the Ferris wheel was called. Having not gambled at I all? said, oh, I didn't know I was a high roller. <laughs> and he said, no, these are high roller tickets. And I said, oh, well, then this seat is in the high roller section. Of- <laughs> <laughs> and then I had to take out the peon tickets that I had in my pocket for the show. And we, we love, sat in the peon section. We love the shows in Las Vegas, <laughs> but again, a lot of them are kind of pricey. Yeah. Uh, so we very much recommend the hot ticks. hot ticks, half price ticket booths, which aren't necessarily really half price, but they give you a discount. When we went the first time to the ticket booth, they had like a scrolling screen for all the names yeah. of all the shows. And I would say we stood there five minutes watching all the names of all the shows right. scroll by. Right. So there really is a tremendous assortment of deals for performances, both clean and unclean, in um, Las Vegas. And those places also sell discounted restaurant dining opportunities, which we didn't do. But But it is hard to go to a show for less than 75 bucks a ticket, even in the hot ticks. Mm -hmm. It's It's uh, pricey. Unless you go to really... Obscure things. Obscure things, right. So take your money if you're going to Las Vegas. It's definitely going to be expensive, but we found the ways to go cheap. <laughs> stay at a cheap campground. Where can you stay for 12 bucks? And certainly within an hour's drive of Las Vegas, there are some wonderful outdoors opportunity. Right. We, well, we talked we to you about We spent the day at Valley of Fire State Park, oh, and we yeah. still need to go to the other one that's even closer. Right. Which we're whose do. name escapes me uh, when we go back again. And, of course, Lake Mead, which we stayed at for a week and we talked about last time. But that was a fabulous experience. And right. only the, the dam and stuff is, is close by. So definitely There's Las Vegas has, has lots of things to do and is, and is exciting. But from there, we went to Death Valley National Park. And Death Valley surprised me. I didn't realize it was the largest national park in the lower 48. And it has some features that you just don't see anywhere else. Yes. Um, the park itself was caused by the fact that our continent is ripping itself in two. <laughs> and the reason that the park is below sea level is that that's where the rip is. And that geological activity has caused um, many things you just don't see anywhere else. And of course, Death Valley is famous for being extremely hot. But that's in the summer. Yes. And to the tune of 135 degrees or something like that. I mean, that's the hottest. But when we were there, it was cold. And we were in And the that's furnace. what's really interesting about Death Valley and the desert is, is that in the wintertime, uh, it's cold. And they had gotten three inches of rain just prior to our arrival. So there were washouts. And you don't think of 
cold and rain for the desert. And some of the but roads it, were closed, and one of them was closed due to icing. Uh, that we could go to snow to drive on. Right, one of the peaks. Unexpected. So the national park, though, has as a, with stimulus money, has built a nice campground that has full hookups. And so we were lucky to get one of the full hookup sites. We made a reservation. Like 25. We were lucky to get one of those sites uh, that we reserved in advance. And though they have lots of boondocking sites, which were not very full when we were there. And because it's a national park uh, with our geezer pass, we paid half price, which <laughs> warmed our hearts or even ridiculous. more. Right. Uh, we're planning on actually going back because some of the things it was too cold to do. Can you imagine that? In Death Valley, California, that you can't do some of the stuff because it's too cold. But that was true. And we read that because of the huge rainfall that they had back in the fall, that this is a wonderful wildflower season. So we were beginning to see some when we were there, but we might go back and see how many more have sprouted out of the sandy, rocky, salty ground? After Pahrump, because Pahrump is... Uh, About an hour away. So we could easily do that. And what did we see in Death Valley? It's huge. And the thing that really surprised me was that there were all sorts of foreign languages being spoken, which it's tells you what an, about a national an international park. Attraction. It's an international attraction, exactly, which I would not consider it. And as she was just reading this morning, found out that the most popular time to visit Death Valley is in the summer. For international people. Right. Who because, don't know better. No, Well, they know better, but they want to experience the extreme heat because that's not something that you can do in most countries. So for us coming in the, in the winter, when it was cool, we could do all the things, and we didn't have to pay attention to the many admonitions about taking Caring enough water. water. And we did several hikes, which were very pleasant. And the, the scenic, the rocks and things are just wow. The variety of the minerals and the mountains and the colors, and yes, all the different sunsets, geological events, right. and cinder cones. It's just a spectacularly beautiful place in a very stark sort of way. And then there's an area called Badwater where yes. um, there was. Water is seeping out of the ground right. and evaporating and leaving a lot of mineral salts behind, which kind of looks like snow and is kind of crunchy, and it heaves up the ground in places. So there was Amazing. an area called the Devil's Golf Course right. because it was so heaved up, um, a place like none other that we've been. Put yes. it on the list. And, and I would say that our travels out here have been kind of interesting in that regard also because just yesterday we drove from... Palm Springs to here, Pahrump, and it was through the desert, uh, two-lane roads um, with not much of a shoulder, but I enjoyed the drive, 250 miles, and it was uh, a very interesting drive because of the scenery. It's just, <laughs> we like green, we like grass, we like trees, but boy, when you drive through the desert, it is really spectacular. The, the long distances you can see because of the very clear, hot skies and the mountains and with how they have developed you could see where they had been eroded and there were there were streaks of lava flowing through them it was just a very interesting experience we've learned uh, to appreciate the high desert areas that we've traveled through to our simple midwestern minds <laughs> when you say desert you think of sand and a cactus right. and certainly that is the case in places but even there the sand varies in quality and color and the vegetation varies greatly we drove through the um, high chaparral when we first left palm springs through the joshua tree area and they were getting ready to bloom that's a very special plant that you don't see anywhere else and some parts of our drive were incredibly green but it right. was all desert kind well, of vegetation, not the irrigated golf course kind of things that we saw in Palm Springs. And of course, in, in Tucson, you see the saguaro. On the way up here, we saw the Joshua trees. And then you see other parts of the desert which are different vegetation. So it's an entirely different ecological system in different parts. And I think... We've come to appreciate those changes. And those that's the unenlightened view of two Midwesterners who just make observations as they drive down the road. And I think because in our younger days we were only able to travel in the summer, we avoided those uh -huh. areas yeah. that we're spending so much time in now and didn't point. really know yeah, much about yeah. them. Yeah, that's a really good point. So from uh, between then and now, we have also been to Lake Havasu. 
which is a, a place that is popular with winter RVers, but we're not quite sure why. Um, that whole area along the Colorado River is quite developed for tourism, but it's just places to stay and bring your boat out onto the water, but there didn't seem to be much else there. I assume some fishing and things, mm-hmm. because Lake Havasu is downriver from Lake Mead and Lake Powell, which we have stayed at. So they have put up a dam, and the Colorado River is... Is, uh, widens as a result of filling in the gullies and, and washes. So this is another area. And, of course, the famous thing in Lake Havasu is the London Bridge. Lake Havasu was put on the map by a man who worked for Walt Disney, and he had that Disney kind of vision. <laughs> and so he wanted to make something out of nothing, just like Walt Disney has done with Central Florida. And um, the story was that they thought they were getting the Tower Bridge, which is the really the picturesque one one that you see in pictures of London, but they bought the Tower Bridge. Which is um, just a bridge. And they knew. The British were trying to get rid of it because it was sinking into the muck and they were (laughs) going to take it down anyway. So this guy bought it. They numbered Numbered every every stone stone and reconstructed it. it. There it is. And you can drive across it and you can drive back across it. And... Another major attraction is a series of one-third scale <laughs> lighthouses that people have built, and they are, are accurate models of various lighthouses in the Northeast and Midwest. Uh, we recognized one of them from our part of the world, and um, I had like Michigan, and I had an, a vision that these people were out there for the winter and feeling kind of nostalgic for home. So they built light, lighthouses that made them think of home, but they're totally incongruous there on the Colorado River. But in terms of things to do in Lake Havasu, there ain't much to do, except when we were there. And we happened to be there for, not happened, we planned to be there for the Lake Havasu Fireworks Week. In this event, RVers are fortunate enough to be able to camp in the rodeo grounds, boondocking, and the fireworks, which are being demonstrated, sold, um, tried out by various fireworks uh, manufacturers, are shooting off fairly close to you, not over your head, but easily seen. And it's kind of a spontaneous thing in that the show begins when it starts to get dark and it goes until they get tired of it. It goes for about three hours. So it was very easy to take our lawn chairs and sit and watch the show. We could sit in front of our RV or walkaways. And when the desert cold started seeping into my bones, we went back into the motorhome and finished watching the show from the window. So it was a wonderful place to get your... Fix of fireworks if you are a junkie. And I should add another reason that I've heard of to go to Lake Havasu is that they have a very nice hot air balloon oh, show. Yes, yes. A friend sent to me a picture yeah, over the of, lake. Mm-hmm. of the nighttime illumination mm-hmm. of the balloons over the lake, which looked really spectacular. So that might be something else to check out some other year when we are in Arizona. But I, I doubt that it can compare to Albuquerque, but... It would be nice. The fireworks, though, as a photographer, give you a really good chance to take lots of pictures and practice because it's over four nights. So you can, and three hours every night, so you can take pictures to your heart's content and look at them and go back the next day and see what you did wrong and make adjustments. I actually found that I didn't use a tripod, shockingly enough, and I would take exposures for 10 or 15 seconds, which of course would be a crazy thing to do. But the motion of me, the slight motion, uh, in addition to the fireworks squirting out, made for some very interesting pictures. A lot of my pictures reminded me of the stuff you see that the Hubble is taking in outer space. It Uh had that appearance. Yeah, you're right. Kind of the ethereal sort of... Yeah, spectral. But the skies are very dark, and so you can get get some great, great pictures. I tried, you know, different zoom settings and different exposure settings. So I ended up taking pictures at uh, a fairly high f-stop and for fairly long exposure so I could get a number of explosions in the frame. And I used a tripod a couple nights, and then I didn't use a tripod. And I think the ones without the tripod with a little bit of extra motion (laughs) actually turned out better. I tried to hold still. I mean, I wasn't actually moving on purpose, but obviously you cannot hold it still for 10 or 15 seconds. So there was some motion there, and that kind of added to the streaks that you saw on the pictures. 
So I'll post some of those on the website so that you can take a look at them. And if you took a look at our posting on the Google page, on the Google Plus page, then you'll have already seen some of them because we post there regularly. Another fun thing we've done since we've talked to you last is we attended Modernism Week in Palm <laughs> Springs. As we've told you before, we watched some TV shows about RVing. And there's a couple that does restorations of 50s-era trailers that has a very nice show. Uh, they work out of a business they call Flight Camp, and the show is called... Flipping RVs. Even though we have absolutely no interest in the 50s, having lived through it, been there, done that, and we don't trailer anymore, uh, we really appreciate that the work that they do, restoring the trailers, foraging throughout the countryside, looking for hardware and fixtures that are appropriate to the time. And the bodies themselves trying to find... And fixing them all up again and then occasionally adding um, a more modern toilet or a refrigerator or something if that's what the customer wants. Well, and then other things they have done are restorations that they use for motel rooms. There are a number of campgrounds that actually have these permanently mounted on their sites and those are customized for a motel room. So they have a big bed, a full-size shower and that sort of stuff and not the towing amenities that you'd find for a traditional trailer. So these are meant to be permanently installed, so they are still restored from the early 50s. So on this show, we saw that they attended something called the Vintage RV Show (laughs) at Modernism Week in Palm Springs and joined many other like-minded people who had restored or paid somebody else to restore uh, their rigs to that vintage sort of look. And we thought, oh, that could be cool to encounter. And then what on earth is Modernism Week? Yes. Which turned out to be a really big deal. It turned out that the RV show was incidental to our Very incidental. As children in the 50s, we do not feel a great fondness for the architecture, decor, color styles, shag carpeting uh, (laughs) that exemplify that era. But this was the time when Palm Springs was really put on the map. Dwight D. Eisenhower came out there to play golf and retired there. Um, any movie star you ever heard of, an entertainer like Bob Hope, Frank Sinatra, Marilyn Monroe, Debbie Reynolds, Elvis Presley, yada, 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 they all, all had, there. had places there. Um, one reason it was a popular choice is the wonderful climate, which we enjoyed, and it's about a two-hour drive from Hollywood. So in those days when a lot of movie stars were under contract to their studios, they could get away and yet be able to respond to that emergency call from their um, their studio to come on back and get back to work. So it became a place to see and be seen, and we took a variety of different tours there, which were part of Modernism Week, um, enjoying the homes both inside and outside in a number of different ways. Yes. We took a walking tour of one of the original film colony enclaves, which was a tract housing place. Would you believe it? Marilyn Monroe lived in tract housing. But because the architecture was so innovative and unique for that time, and these houses have been so lovingly preserved and modernized and maintained, you just walked around with your jaw hanging down. It was such a beautiful neighborhood. And I think that although we don't like the decor from the 50s, the housing style in this area with the very flat roofs, low one-story houses. Simple. Simple with full-length windows that go from floor to ceiling, and the kind of indoor outdoor sort of living that these folks did so you'd open up the the sliding glass doors onto the pool and you'd have this great scene with the mountains in the background and your pool and you could kind of eat indoor outdoor sort of experience and very simple sort of uh decorations and the you know the the white melmac sort of look to it uh we appreciated the opportunity to see these places we're not in that we are of that vintage but we are not appreciating of that vintage, and we certainly have never heard of modernism used as a term for mid-50s or 60s. So this neighborhood where we took the walking tour was a very nice place to walk around in because in those days, stars did not erect giant security hedges and gates, and you could really peer into these homes where obviously wealthy people but not famous people were living anymore. And we were also able to take a bus tour on a double-decker bus where we could peer down (laughs) on some of the homes where the people were trying to hide from us a little bit. I saw a lot of pools when we went on that tour. And then we went on a 
tour where we were able to go inside some of the homes that had been newly right. decorated for people who wanted to been updated to live in a modern way in these historic homes. So bottom line is is that Palm Springs we have been to Palm Springs before and we didn't do any of this modernism stuff, which was a shock to us. I mean we come back and what happens? We have this whole new area to look at that we didn't even know was there. Uh, you know, we looked at the houses kind of casually, but, you know, it, it didn't sink in with us that this was a place, actually one of the premier places for this type of architecture. And there are neighborhoods upon neighborhoods. We knew, of course, that this was a habitat for the Rat Pack and all the new movie stars of California, but we're not kind of into that sort of stuff. But the architecture is what brought these people there. And, well, I think the climate is what brought people there, but they... They built these houses. Proximity to each other once they all got there. And apparently during the 50s and 60s, uh, these folks would, could be seen downtown shopping and, and nobody paid any attention to the big stars because everybody was somebody from the, the movie community. So if you have an opportunity to go to, to Palm Springs or the area surrounding it, there are many, many campgrounds. There are more, lots of people who stay there for long periods of time. And we had stayed there without any knowledge of <laughs> what was going on. But if you have a chance to go to Modernism Week, or if you have a chance to take one of the, the architectural tours, it's well worth doing because it's fascinating, especially if you're of a certain vintage. Which well, we and still are. quite current. I mean, while we were there, President oh, yeah. Obama came and yes. went to Sunnylands, which is another historic property that we would have loved to have seen, but it was sewed up tighter than a drum because he was meeting and the with, tours were all taken. with Asian um, leaders trying right. to establish trade, better trade relations with them. Uh, so history has gone on there and continues to because of the wealth and influence of the, the people who live there. And if you're planning a week or so out in this area, uh, definitely plan it with Modernism Week, which is 10 days in the middle of February, with this week in mind because it's uh, pretty interesting to go around and actually take tours from experts and to see these things because those houses are not open as a regular uh, event and they have a lot of events including movie uh, previews and that sort of stuff for vintage movies. Overall I think we found the tours the kind of pricey but it was worth it to us but we also did free things like a bike tour of the area that had been organized by a local uh, solar panel installer um, and that was free and again that was a nice way to get us out in the neighborhoods and seeing the homes. Right. And you can take these bike tours, though, anytime. And when you start to go ride your bike around the community and you look around, you say, oh, these houses are special. They are not uh, the kind of thing that you see in other parts of the country, at least not, not in our experience. So uh, take a look at Modernism Week next on the agenda. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a fantastic fan? Many RVers do, don't they? I think so, but I think it's an option for lots of people. And you may wonder, Fantastic Fan, of course, is a brand name, but the Fantastic Fan is an exhaust fan for your RV. And having an exhaust fan helps you uh, save on air conditioning and actually just provides a nice little breeze to your motorhome. Ours is on right now and you can't even hear it. But actually, we have two Fantastic Fans. So that means one of them died. <laughs> <laughs> and Ken has to fix it. And, of course, ours, uh, the Fantastic Fan has a rain sensor. So uh, when it rains, the vent shuts. It has auto-reverse so it can bring air in. And it has uh, the new ones have remote controls. Ours has an electric control on the wall. So it has a temperature sensor so that when it gets cold, it shuts the fan off. And when it gets warm, it turns the fan on. And all of those good things. La-dee-da. But, of course... When you have all of those things, things go bad. <laughs> and I was happy that uh, Fantastic, the company who uh, makes the Fantastic fan, has been very helpful. I called them up and they said, oh, we have a seven-year warranty. Wow. Wow. Who has a seven-year warranty? And they didn't ask for any real verification. verification. I just said, I have a 2012. And they said, okay, no problem. We'll send you what you need to fix your fantastic fan. Surprisingly enough, they did. And they had to rewire some of it because ours was old enough that they didn't right, have it they had to, on the they shelf. They had to create the unit that I needed special. So it took 10 days to manufacture, I guess. 
So it's laying here with all these wires and This afternoon's fun activity is going to be reinstalling the Fantastic Fan. We'll let you know next month how that story turned out. So that we can have both of our fans blasting away, bringing in the cool air so that we don't have to use the air conditioner. The bottom line is if these are things that you can install yourself if you don't have a Fantastic Fan. And it's much better than the little three-inch fan that goes into your bathroom vent. And we're impressed how the company stood behind their product. Yeah, that's a really nice option. And and to finish another story from last month, uh, when we were in Quartzite, um, we tried to purchase a watering system for our new batteries that will keep them topped off without Ken having to put the slide in and go into all kinds of pretzel contortions to see if the batteries need to be watered. And And because we have so dang many batteries, they didn't have what we needed on hand, but they've sent it to us, and you have put them on. And that, of course, I purchased, but I have installed the battery watering system. Uh, There are several things that I like about it. One is, of course, I could just, it's got a bulb on it. You just squeeze it, and it waters the batteries, and you don't even have to look at them, really. But when I pull the tray out, and I look at the batteries, it's got a white dot on each of the cells, which tells you which cells are full which is very good. So it's got a little float in each one that uh, indicates that the cell is up to speed. And, of course, I just put in the eight new batteries, and I want to keep them in good shape because I'm not – I didn't buy AGMs. So, and I know we've had some discussions with some of our listeners about whether I should have put in AGMs. Or but, lithium. Or li- Well, lithium, that's kind of lame. Another discussion. Yes. But the bottom line is is that I have put in the battery watering system, and which overcomes the problem of letting the batteries go low, which is not a problem with AGM. I bought the new batteries, and all of that is significantly less than buying AGMs. And I hope they will give us the same service. Keeping the batteries watered is important. And this makes it much easier to do, especially when you have so especially many, when you, and some are somewhat inaccessible. Well, I can't see in there when the slide's out. It makes it something that I'll do on a more regular basis. Another story we have an ending <laughs> to, I think it was at Christmas time that you noticed an ad for a macerator. Well, yeah, a, a water-operated macerator. Yeah, without an engine. And I've talked about the this, this stinky slinky and how, you know, you get that hose out there and you get a, a 15-footer out there and you get it, it's kind of a pain to have to manipulate. And so I bought the Valterra Sewer Solution, and I put the link on there. I talked about this before, but I hadn't actually installed it or used it. And one of the reasons was because I had to have, uh, for our motorhome, I had to buy a little extension, you know, one of those clear... Uh, three-inch diameter extensions for to the, attach it to attach it, right? Because it of course attaches attaches on the end of your sewer connection. For most of the time, you just let the gray water come out through the standard three-quarter inch hose, so it looks like a garden hose. And then when you're ready to to empty the black, you hook up a water hose. And it sprays water into the stream where the black water is coming out, and it pulverizes pulverizes the stuff in the black water tank, and it then goes down through the three-quarter inch hose. And they say that this will pump it uphill to a certain extent, and it will pump it a long distance, which is also good. So I now have just a small, what looks like a garden hose that replaces the stinky slinky. And that fits into the bay easier. When it gets cold, it isn't as much messing around. Um, So I I see this as an all-around good sort of thing, and we will probably keep you updated as time goes along. But for the time being, you might want to consider this. And it doesn't cost like a macerator. A macerator pump is big bucks, you know, two or three hundred dollars for a macerator pump. And they have been notoriously bulky to use. And he, they use electricity, so you got to wire them in and blah, 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 blah. This just disconnects. And anytime you want to use a stinky slinky like at the dump station, you just take this off and put the stinky slinky on and you dump quickly. This is obviously not a quick solution. And at a dump station, you're not going to find the water hose. <clears throat> so you're going to have to keep a short slinky, stinky slinky around. For traditional so, dumping. For traditional dumping at the dump station. But we don't do dump stations too often. But it's no problem to do it. And it looks durable? The hose is quite, mm-hmm. yes. And I hope that it doesn't get too stiff in the winter, in the cold weather. Yeah, they're hard to handle. But I have been kind of waiting for it to get warm out before I made this big transition so that I could 
handle it and the water wouldn't be too cold in case something went wrong i would be ready to to even though we've been moving around a lot and it's been hard to get mail and package deliveries ken has managed to do some shopping me shop what do i what do i shop for i think you got some kind of new camera every time you hold it in your hand it's swiveling around yes i did (laughs) this is called the osmo you know dji who made my my uh, drone is uh, makes very cool little cameras that overcome several problems that you have with making videos. And these are primarily video cameras because when you have a video camera, you have this problem of motion. And you move and the camera moves, and so the, the video that you get is very obviously handheld. Kind of nauseating right. to watch. And you know that... In, in Hollywood, they use uh, Steadicams, which is some sort of a mechanism that you know hooks on with a belt and and has an arm and stuff that offsets human motion, so that uh, it looks steady. And those are very expensive. The drone market has come up with gimbals, and when you're in a drone, you have the same sort of problem that you would have when you're walking, but uh, you have a very small mechanism needed because the drone doesn't carry very much. So what DJI has done is put a drone gimbal on a handheld device which weighs less than a pound. This is called the Osmo. And if you're into video and you'd like to have steady video, and that's one of the reasons why I don't do videos because it's so obviously handheld and I don't want to mess around with tripods and stuff. So you can take the Osmo and you can go out and do handheld video that looks like it's on a tripod. Now, is that cool? It is, but now you're going to have to carry two cameras again. Well, that's not a really a big problem because this one is so small. It's got a 120-degree view, so it doesn't uh, focus or it doesn't have a zoom lens on it, which is something else I appreciate because I need a, a wide-angle lens or I'd like to have one. And it also takes 12-megapixel stills so that it's quite a nice camera in addition to being a video camera. It's a still camera. Also, it takes panoramas automatically, so the gimbal goes click, 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 automatically taking perfect panoramas. And puts them together in the camera. Uh, As I found out, it puts them together, but it only puts them together for you to view on your display device, which happens to be an iPhone, which is another cool factor. So when you download them, you still have to reassemble them? Right. So you have a control, and you don't have to have a special device because you use your iPhone or iPad uh, with an app. So you connect up to the Osmo with the... Wi-Fi, and then you can control it, pan it, do all control with the exposure and all sorts of other things, control whether it's doing video or stills. You only have to have the one device. So the camera itself is actually very small and has no display device. You look puzzled. No. She's seen it in operation. I've just seen it twirling around. I haven't seen many results. You haven't showed me. And you can do selfies. Well, I have to admit that it, it's the results have not been as spectacular because... Is there a learning curve here? There is a definite learning curve. All right. <laughs> That's with technology is you always have this problem of you have to learn how to use it before it can be used. As many of you know, our next month's podcast will be... Possibly late in getting posted because we will be in South America for the beginning of April. And we'll be in the the off-the-grid part of South America. (laughs) So there may be uh, an off-the-grid moment. We talk about being so regular, and once a month we post the podcast, and we've done very good in all sorts of conditions. But we arrive home on April 1st, so I am not sure that we are going to have a chance to do the podcast. From the Uh, airport? (laughs) It may be done from the airport, and so that'll be a very interesting experience. We have a little RV news to share now that we're done talking about ourselves (laughs) incessantly. Uh, We've been suffering greatly from the low-quality internet in many of the campgrounds that we have stayed in, Um, and I am ready to go home and download things from places like YouTube, which is going to be having next month um, a very exciting-sounding show about two people who take a, a major RV trip 
across Australia. We know that we have listeners in Australia who love to camp, or caravan as they call it, and there are definitely large portions of Australia we would still like to see, and I always think about whether I want to do it by RV or fly around or drive around. The country is just so big and so hard to access. So this show will show us how these two hosts travel 1,700 miles in two and a half weeks and tour... In March of 2016. And tour part of Australia. And these two guys, very interestingly, have spent three years traveling around in an RV in the United States. Have you seen their videos? I have looked at some of their videos, Uh and they have some how-to videos as well as travel videos. This is called the RV Geeks, R-V-G-E-E-K-S dot com. And I haven't really viewed their stuff before, but it's actually quite interesting. So you might want to take a look at their stuff, not only for this travel experience, but because they have some interesting videos about how to do stuff in an RV. So when we are home again, it's at the top (laughs) of my list. Internet Which is very long. Internet, internet, internet is always a problem. And here it is very slow, and you just think, oh, it's a small soda straw that I'm sucking this data through. Why, why, why can't they hook it up? And some places they, they talk, our last campground, they talked about they're all installing. All the money that they spent. Uh, yeah, and thousands of dollars. And, and they're getting a 300 megabit input and they can't distribute it for every, I don't know. It's just. It was bad. So we are still happy to have our satellite internet. Yes. And we have upped our cell phone coverage internet quite a lot. And that helps, but it still doesn't allow it's, for much streaming. It's not like being at home. So if you are into doing RVing, <laughs> understand that you're probably going to be limited internet. And the and the the guy next door to us yesterday said uh, it's been hard to get along on only two gigabytes a month. And what are we doing? What are we going to do? We're going to up it to five. And here I am at eighteen on two different accounts, feeling deprived. Finally, feeling deprived. Do I feel a rant coming on? No. You know, I've talked about lithium-ion batteries in the motorhome, and here we have for the first time I've seen. A lithium battery that's going to be installed by the RV manufacturer. And Forest River will roll out some of Forest River's Sunseeker motorhomes with a single 100-amp lithium battery. Included in the rig will be a special power converter charger system to handle the special needs of these high-tech batteries. Finally, somebody's coming along and going to install it into the RV but as, as a standard item. But as someone that is never an early adopter, um, I, I was appalled by the recent TV footage of a guy who had a little lithium battery in his pocket for his e-cigarette, which caught on fire and gave him second-degree burns on his legs through his pocket. Well, it was and sparking thinking, like it was fireworks. I just, I just want to wait a while longer before I add lithium batteries to much more of my collection because they're already in my computer, right? Or in your computer and your iPhone. They're yeah. in, you've got tons of them already. I'm in danger in your, already. In your, your camera and now in your Osmo. <laughs> <laughs> Average U.S. internet speed, oh, as I talk about this, has more than tripled since 2011. In a report published by the FCC found that the average connection speed in the U.S. as of September 2014 checks in at 31 megabits per second is a marked increase from the 10 megabits per second average the agency observed back in 2011. Contributing to the increase Average is the fact that the maximum connection speed offered by ISPs has increased dramatically over the last few years. In 2011, for example, the maximum advertised download speed fell in the 10 to 20 megabits per second range. By 2014, the number of ISPs were offering Internet download speeds in the 50 to 105 megabit range. And certainly at home, we have noticed this. Media people keep tempting us with more and more things that you have to stream. It's the only way you can see them. Right, and at home, we're up to 90 megabits a second. So you need to check your speed with uh, Substarter Service and make sure that you're getting what you're paying for. And it may be time to upgrade your service to get uh, a little bit faster. Of course, here at the campgrounds, we're lucky to get one megabit. So our speed at home is 90 times faster than it is here at a campground. So we can do email. 
We can do email. Keep sending us emails. Oh, Winnebago Class A diesel production transitions to the West Coast. This is sad and also exciting. Winnebago plans to move production of selected diesel products to the 200,000 square foot facilities with the transition estimated to be completed by sometime in the second half of calendar year 2017. They have bought the former Country Coach facilities, and they are moving Winnebago's diesel production to those facilities. So Country Coach will not be coming back because they have been bought by Winnebago. So I assume Winnebago's not going to be doing Country Coach. So Country Coach has had rumors that it was going to come back and going to be produced again. I kind of think seals off the agreement that there will be no Country Coach coming back. I I try to pick out articles which I think are of broad interest and this one is uh, kind of fascinating. We have a company in Europe, the Heimer Group, which is the largest producer of U- of RVs in Europe. And it's actually much bigger than anybody in the United States. It has 800 dealers throughout Europe and does 1.5 billion euros in business each year. Billion, 165 billion in US dollars. And they have bought Roadtrek which is very interesting. Roadtrek, of course, makes the Class Bs, uh, the big Bs. This is a great opportunity for Roadtrek to join the largest motorhome manufacturer in the world. In Europe, the Heimer Group manufactures 35,000 units a year, which is almost as big as the entire North American motorhome market from all companies combined. And they are going to be absorbed by Heimer, and I assume that this means that there will be some European features coming into the U.S. motorhomes, which I think is pretty good because they, when we visit Europe and other countries where these are sold, it is, they have a definite style. And I think they have a great interest in making the most out of small spaces, which is certainly something that an RV always needs. Yes. So this is uh, kind of end up the podcast for this month. We have uh, (laughs) taken too much of your time already, but as we talk about what's coming up in the next month, we will be headed back to Las Vegas. To leave the motorhome there while we fly to Easter Island and Patagonia, which is the bottom of Chile and Argentina. We were worried about storing our RV for a month uh, or three weeks that we'll be gone, but we found this campground, which for $320 a month will... Let us leave it plugged in. Hope it will still be there when we come back. So we're we're looking forward to uh, parking the RV, pulling in the slides, and leaving it sit for a month. As we travel off, and we're traveling from Las Vegas, which we found out the airfare was about the same as it was from Chicago, so why Why not? Why go home? Why not just park it? Our suitcases are in the basement, and they have been packed. Well, I've packed mine. I have not. We only get one small suitcase anyway, so it's it not a big deal. It take long to fill it up. But one of the advantages to having a big motorhome is you got the space in the basement for a few extra suitcases. And so we put the suitcases in and the Osmo in the camera case, and we'll be off and visiting Patagonia. So even though some of you wonderful listeners have tracked us down in the past <laughs> month, it's unlikely that you will be at a campground near us next month unless you are just looking at our motorhome which is sitting there empty in las vegas in las vegas right but from there on we head to uh the coast all interesting places we head to the california coast and san francisco so dear listener we are hoping to hear from you and hope to see you in a campground near us in the month of april and we thank you very much for all of your emails and for listening to us rant and rave and carry on (laughs) we appreciate you being there for us very much Talk to you soon. Bye now.